0: Good morning, afternoon, and evening, wherever you are. I'm your host, Ujan, and this is New Books in South Asia. Today, we are discussing Theft of a Tree, an English translation of Parijata Paharanamu, a Telugu classical text. It's translated by Harshita Kamath and Velcheru Narayana Rao. The book is published in 2022 by Harvard University Press under the murti classical library of india here's a small introduction for our the authors of the book dr velterunarayana rao taught telugu and indian literature for 38 years at the university of wisconsin madison where he had he was the krishna devaraya professor of languages and cultures of asia in 2015 He was named the first Vishweshwara Rao and Sita Kopaka professor in Telugu culture, literature, and history at Emory University, a position which he held until December 2017. Professor Rao is the author of several books on Telugu literature and South Indian history, including classical Telugu poetry and anthology with David Shulman, God on the Hill, Temple Songs from Tirupati with David Shulman, 2005, the Story of Manu with David Shulman, 2015, and Texts and Traditions in South India, 2016. Most recently, he was awarded the prestigious Sahitya Academy Award by the Government of India in 2021. Dr. Harshita Muthini kamat is the Visheshwara Rao and Sita Kopakka Associate Professor in Telugu Culture, Literature and History at Emory University. Her research focuses on the textual and performance traditions of Telugu-speaking South India. Her monograph, Impersonations, the Artifice of Brahmin Masculinity in South Indian Dance, 2019, analyzes gender impersonation in the Telugu dance cycle of Kuchipuri. Her next research project focuses on the Padmas, short lyrical songs of 15th century Telugu poet Andamaya. Uh, Dr. Kamath, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. And of course, we wish that Dr. Aviltro Nurey could be here with us today. Um, We tried, and unfortunately, the internet connectivity in the village that he's in wouldn't cooperate. So um, luckily, I have some recordings of his
0: voice, so at least we can hear him through his recordings. Mm -hmm. But thank you for having me. So Professor Kamat, our first question is always biographical um, um, just for the benefit of our viewers. And um, of course, I am aware, but how did uh, you and Professor Rao sort of come to this project? Um,
1: Absolutely. I uh, read Parijata Paranambu for my dissertation. Um, my interests were really in the character of Satya Bhama, um, who is one of the wives of the Hindu deity Krishna. And within Telugu textual and performance traditions, she has a very, very strong role. And so I was really focused, again, on the Telugu sphere of both her presence within literature as well as performance. And the book project that is from my dissertation looks at her character um, in the practice of Kuchipudi impersonation, the dawning of the strivesham, or a woman's guise, particularly of Satyabhama's guise. But she has a long textual history in Telugu-speaking South India, and it really crystallizes with Manditi Parijata Paranamu. So when I was doing my dissertation fieldwork, I was affiliated with the University of Hyderabad, in their Telugu department, I was actually not affiliated with their dance department. And the advisor, um, I had a Fulbright, and the advisor assigned to me was Rama Brampan. And he was the then chair of the Telugu department and worked on classical Telugu. And, you know, when you're doing fieldwork in India and you're sort of trying to figure out what your day-to-day experiences are going to be, um, it can be a little challenging at first, especially when it's ethnographic fieldwork. And so what I started to do is I I would go to the University of Hyderabad, um, which is you know about a, it was a bus ride about an hour away, and I would go every day, and we would read uh together, and then I would go to the dance department and spend some time there and come back, and so that went on for several months, and I found myself coming back uh, to uh, sort of my flat and and then. Or, you know, re recording re-translating the verses that I have, and I came up with a rough translation of the entire text. It took several months, actually, to finish the text. And when we got to the end, Rama sir said, um, well, we can't finish with the last verse. We have to start back over. You never read Atalgu Prabanda. that is what this kind of epic poem is. From start to finish and stop, you actually start back again, with verse number one. And so I found that very frustrating because I wanted to sort of close the book and be done with it. Um, So but we started back over. And actually, there is something um, that works really well in the structure of the text. Um, The final um, verse, uh, the final syllable ends with the the letters Shri uh, and the first syllable is Shri. So the whole text is encapsulated in this uh, auspicious syllable Shri. Um, So a number of years later in 2013, um, that is after I had finished my dissertation and had started a position at Middlebury College, I reached out to Naraino and said, you know, I think I have this rough translation of this text. I'd love to do something with it. And he, you know, he and I started working on it together. And um, when I'm saying together, we actually would sit together in his uh, house in Atlanta and go back and forth through the verse and then come up with a rough translation. And I would type it out and he would do it orally. And then we would kind of go back and forth like that. And that's how we worked for about six or seven years. And at the same time, the story of Manu uh, was published as the first set of volumes through the Murti Classical Library of India. And he was very excited about the possibilities of the dual language translation at the time. And so he proposed that we consider the Morthy um, volume, you know, the series as a possibility for this volume, and in my head, I was thinking, well, we'll just publish it, you know, with Penguin India. It'll be a, you know, sort of maybe we'll do some selections, not the whole text. I had no sort of real commitment. I just thought this text hasn't been translated in English, so we might as well try, um, and it really took
0: on a life of its own. So, um, wow, so one of the things that I, um, I i i honestly would say that this is um it's sort of i think was it's better that it's, it came out with m c l i than with penguin um for um various reasons i think penguin would may may or may not have gone through censorship issues which is like a huge problem now in india even for pre modern poetry um so so i think that it's a good thing that it came out from m c l i the work is out and yeah so uh, my next question is sort of uh, to give our viewers or listeners really um, sense of uh, the history of Telugu literature a bit and where can we situate Nandi Timanna?
1: Absolutely. So I was excited to do this work because Timana is a at the height of classical Telugu literary tradition, both within the kind of imagined Telugu literary landscape, uh, and I say imagined because... He's known as one of the Jalu, that is the um, eight elephant poets who were said to have been seated in Krishna Devaraya's court. That is the great uh, Vijayanagara monarch, Krishna who ruled in the early 16th century in Vijayanagara. And Krishna himself was not a Telugu speaker, but pa- is said to have patronized many Telugu poets. And so, in the imaginary literary landscape, he's said to have had eight, these eight elephant poets that were composing in his court. Uh, we know that historically that's not entirely the case, but it just so happens that he did have two uh, historical poets who he patronized. And so the two are Alasani Badana, uh, who wrote the Manucha de Tremu, and Nanditimana, who wrote Parijata Parnamu. And this, these two works are considered to be prabandas, um, or Mahaprabandas, even, which is they are great kind of epic poems, akin to the genre of the Mahakavya within Sanskrit. And so, in the 16th century, we find that Telugu really crystallizes and comes into its own as a literary language. Of course, Telugu has much earlier origins as a classical literary language. It begins with um, the Nannaya Bhatta's uh, Mahabharatamu, which is the very first epic Telugu text. We think there historically may have been texts before uh, Nannaya's Bharatam, but we don't have actual historical evidence of what those texts are. And so tradition tells us that Nannaya was the very first poet of classical Telugu and he's dated to the 11th century. So when Telugu emerges as a literary language, I just want to note that about 80% of Telugu is Sanskrit. And so we have Telugu as as barring Sanskrit conventions. Um, And so classical Telugu literary works are written as champus. Um, That is, they are mixed metrical and prose style. So they alternate between verses that are set in meter and then verses that are are in prose or gadya. And this is not modern English prose per se, but still very heightened literary prose. And so, this genre um, that Nanaya sets forth is something that that really comes into its kind of into its own, I would say, within the Prabandha period. And so, that is what we call the period that Mana was writing in. And I really like him personally as a poet, having read some other Prabandha poetic work, Because, and you'll see this when you read it, the volume itself. He, unlike almost any other story, right, whether it's an Indian epic like the Mahabharata, he tells a very straightforward story, like in terms of plot. It starts in the beginning with these, you know, with Bhava and Krishna and Rukmani, and it goes from the very first verse all the way until the end, really focused on that, that story. So in some ways, and we say this in the introduction, it's sort of a precursor to what we might call the kind of idea of the Indian novel that takes place, fully fleshed out with Pingali Surana, um, who's a few decades after
0: him. Right. So one thing that I was, um, when I was reading uh, the book, and I was also reading sort of um, the history of Telugu literature, the older version that came out from uh, from Sahitya Academy of Bhujanga Rao. And one of the things that I was fascinated by was how the periodization works. So, so it sort of says that um, the prabantha genre is sort of the acme of Telugu poetry and then sort of his declines because of its kavyas. from the later ones, which seems to me very similar to the periodization story of Hindi, which says like, you know, the Riti poetry is where everything goes bad. Um, and we have this very similar sort of understanding in Uriya too that the kavya poetry goes bad. So um, do you think that the periodization uh, sort of played a role in the canonization of Tinamma?
1: I mean, I think that Dīmene's affiliation with the court of Krishnāvārāya probably puts this the poetic works that are coming out in this particular time as being in the apex of um classical Telugu, and so I think that you know there's something to be said about the affiliation with an extraordinarily powerful monarch, um, and the kinds of historical evidence that Dīmene's text provides us about Krishnāvārāya. Um, in the the avatarika, that is the sort of preface to the actual. Uh, in the first thirty verses or so, are actually all about Krishna Varaya. and so it's it's they serve as kind of in some ways as kind of clues to, as to what was happening during the period of Krishna Vataya's rule. Um, I would I would encourage maybe a, a pushback against the idea of this period periodization as you describe it, because I think. But what happens, at least in the context, I'll just speak from the context of Telugu, is that, yes, the prabandhas that are produced within this period are incredible and quite varied, and each poet has their own kind of poetic style, whether it is a poet like Dimana or like Pedana, Krishnevaraya himself actually wrote the Amoktamalida, his own prabandha, which my colleague Ilamit is working on. And... I think that, you know, we, there should be all credit given to the amazing poetic works that were generated during this time. But I would argue, just like you said about Riti poetry later, that within the context of Telugu poetic productions, there are a number of prabandhas and kavyas and yakshaganas, that is dance dramas, that are produced in later periods, um, particularly in the context of the Naika and Maratha courts at thanjavur that also have enormous amounts of literary weight. Um, But they take themes like stringata, for example, and emphasize them and draw them out in different ways. And so some of my new work is actually interested in this topic of stringata that is the erotic and the ways in which it becomes seminal to Telugu literary production. So yes, while kind of standard histories of Telugu want to say, everything was golden during the Vijayanagara period and then there's a decline, I think just as interesting work is coming out afterwards. So um, I think those of us who are Telugu uh, literary historians or scholars who are interested in sort of seeing each poetic work for its own um, value without kind of ascribing a periodization model um, to suggest that one is somehow better than the other.
0: Yeah, I, I always think that this periodization politics is very interesting. Um and we we ha- and for some reason it's 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 a bit blown out of proportion in Orisha a lot. Uh, because um some of the very from the finest Odia literary production comes in what is classically compared to the Kavya era, which is this era that apparently everything degenerated and I've always been wondering about this periodization politics, but it's interesting to see that it sort of gets mirrored in more or less all Indian languages. Um, you know, the golden era vis-a-vis um, its eventual decline to something bad. And then somehow it sort of resurgence with colonialism. Um.
1: I think, I mean, I think it's a really important question for us to ask is, and this is the question that I am interested in more generally, is how do we know what we know and how do colonial or post-colonial, if we can even, you know, say that we are at a moment in India of being post-colonial, um, Politics actually shape the ways in which we view earlier works. And so a lot of my own kind of research interests have been what to happened in the 19th and 20th centuries that causes us to reshape the writing of history. And so we see this in the context of Shringarapadams that are produced, that is, these erotic songs um, that are produced within the context of a court of a temple poet like Anamaya. And then, you know, um, court poets, such as Kshetraya, uh, the ways in which they're treated within Tadigal literary circles in the 19th and 20th centuries are just very interesting. I mean, I think we should really be um, careful and circumspect about the ways in which we envision how we're reading the
0: past based off of what happens in the colonial and post-colonial context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so so in terms of... um, Timanna's own Prabhanta, how do you say that it sort of stands out or compares to the other prabanthas of the time?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, each of these Prabandha poets has their kind of own unique style. And, you know, I think that Timanna, in some ways, I would say, he sort of draws within the lines, like he's not doing any kind of real radical experimentation in terms of metrical style, um, there are sections, especially I would say in the second chapter um, that is the Dutiashvasamo of the text that feel like he's drawing maybe perhaps a little too much on kind of conventional imagery um, to describe scenes of uh, there's a whole a whole set of verses that are about sunrise and sunset or actually sunset and sunrise that take quite a bit of time. Um, but I think where his to me, where his uh, strength comes out as a poet is in his ability to craft and tell a story. I mean, he's a masterful storyteller, and you are drawn in into this narrative of, um, of you know, essentially wifely rivalry, um, and and then ultimately, um, a reconciliation and a promise for you know a battle. Right. So the the basic frame story for those of you who might not be familiar is that. There is um, Narada, the peripatetic sage who sort of wanders around trying to cross trouble, comes into Krishna's um, palace when he is with Rukmini, um, And he has a Parijata flower with him and he gifts the Parijata flower. That is, the Parijata flower is this kind of divine um, flower that's said to you know, blossom from this tree that is in the garden of Indra, the king of the gods. And he has one flower, and it kind of, it's fragrance, never fades. It's sort of uh, this beautiful and flower that sparks love and joy. And he gives the flower to Krishna. And Krishna is standing there with his wife, Rukmani, and he sort of said, he thinks to himself, I really have to give this flower to my wife, Rukmani, but if Satyabama hears of this gift, she'll be upset. And lo and behold, she comes to hear from one of her sort of, um, uh, maids or sakis who is present in Rukmini's palace and runs to sell, tell Satyabhama and Satyabhama becomes very upset and uh, retreats to her kopagraha or krodhagara, that is the anger room that everyone knows from Kaikai and Maramainam. The same, very same. And there's this very sort of dramatic scene in which Satyabhama is in her anger room, her anger chamber, and Krishna comes and she can smell like the scent of the padijata on him and she becomes even more incensed. So she takes this veil that she has and pulls it over her head and he sort of, you know, sort of coaxes her and he finally bows down to her feet. And in this very remarkable set of verses, um, she kicks him on the head. And and then his response, rather than being offended, is just to say, I'm so sorry, the bristling hairs on my, my body must have pricked your feet. Um, you're in your sort of very gentle feet. And so ultimately, he placates her by saying, I'll go and get the whole tree. Why are you upset? I'll I'll go and, you know, bring it from Indra's garden. And so they travel together to Indra's garden, and he essentially plucks up the tree, uproots it they put it on Garuda's back and they fly off and all the gods sort of follow suit, Dikpalas and Indra, and there's a huge battle that rages. And then ultimately um, there's a reconciliation. So it's a really interesting narrative. It's one that, you know, it has its roots within Sanskrit tradition and it's retold in many places. Um, But uh, Dimana really makes it his own. And it's one that I will say that there's something about the way that Dimana tells it that sparks the imagination of later, um, you know, later works. So I actually have a graduate student, Alekia Maladi, who's writing a um, um, her dissertation on the 18th century poet, Tarigurna Vengamamba. And Vengamamba retakes this entire story and retells it as a Yakshagana. And in that case... Satyabhama is not this kind of jealous wife, right? She sort of is more ascetic, and, you know, so she, so we have later poets and it actually goes into, um, into, onto, uh, there's a play of the, of this text. um, And then it's retold in, in film and in dance dramas. And so I think the Muna, to me, his kind of unique style is that he's sort of a really masterful storyteller when it comes to this narrative.
0: Yeah. So, so one thing that stands out, and I know you mentioned this a bit in the introduction too, is that there's tension sort of with, because this is a divine play in some sense, like, you know, divine actions, divine uh, figures, but there's also a human element to it. Um, so how do you um, describe this tension that's like sort of almost always in this um, pravantha?
1: Absolutely. I think that, you know, we can think about when we're reading a prabandha to see the kind of different layers of voices that we find. So for Satyabhama, like she's very much sort of centered within the kind of human elements of the drama. Um, so it's that she has been slighted by her, um, you know, by Krishna, by his favoritism towards Rukmani. And she's really worried about her position among the other co-wives. She's annoyed that no one else says anything and that she's somehow been put in a kind of secondary position and she's worried about even what her mother-in-law Devaki might think. And so she wants to kind of reign supreme among all of his co-wives, right? And and actually she does a uh, vrata um, at the end of the text to really kind of uh, solidify that position of uh, power within the family. So for her, it's very much about a drama of of what is her role as a wife within this kind of broader landscape of Krishna and his many the many women he has around him. Um, but for the poet, I would say, and we hear the poet's voice come out uh, within certain verses, and certainly in certain instances in which he is setting uh, de- elaborate descriptions of Krishna through his characters. And so he used shifts meter, for example. So there is a dandaka um, that is this kind of uh, gushing, uh, poetic sort of genre in which um, we hear all of like the whole history of Krishna's life stories being narrated. Um, or towards the end, there's this remarkable use of chitrakavya, which, again, is pretty unusual. I don't think other prabhanda poets, um, that is, dimana's uh, contemporaries are using um, or those around him, like contemporaries, not exactly, but um, are not using the genre of Chitrakavya, but he does, and he uses it to praise Krishna, um, but set through the voice of Narada. And so for him, for, that is for Timana, this is God, right? There is no human, he might be a human and he might be engaged in these human dramas, but um so we find you know in some ways a really interesting text that is layered one can read it in one way and then read it in another way depending on which character's version of the narrative that you look at
0: Yeah and and on chitra kavyas I read that I read the recent piece you wrote on uh, the chitra kavyas which was very interesting um because chitra kavyas I have I've been trying to figure out what because um we um uh, The poet that I work on, who's like a later, like a 17th century Uriya poet, he's the first person to use Chitra Kavya. And um, so I had always been wondering, like, what is the sort of inception of that genre until I like stumbled across your uh, piece and I was like, oh, so this is where it comes from. So can you uh, more broadly, like, do you know where it comes from and um, or broadly how uh, Timanna uses it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, first, uh, to just say there's one. There's many people who've worked on chitrakavya, um, and uh, you know it's certainly not specific to the Dalugu tradition. Um, it you know chitrakavya is chitra and kind of means, it. I, I think I translate it as wondrous. Um, and so I think it can mean many many things. Like sometimes it's described as being flashy poetry. It's not considered to be um the highest form of poetry within the kind of uh, milieu of the Alankara Shastra sort of modality, if we're thinking about very refined uh, and complicated poetry, it's certainly not up there. It's sort of like, um, if I think the closest maybe in English equivalent would be concrete poetry or something along those lines where it's figural. Um, it's actually visually re- represented. Um, and if you look at the introduction for um, Parijataparamu for Theft of a Tree, we included a chitra um, of the Nagabandamo there. Um, We actually had to (laughs) petition the the Murti Classical Library of India um, to allow us to um, include that Chitra image because uh, we really wanted to have it because it's in the text. Um, But one thing to say is that there are multiple styles of of Chitra. Uh, So Chitra can be figural poems, that is poems in which each syllable is written so that it or I'm going to say written, but I'm actually going to clarify in one second, is composed so that they create a picture, a visual picture. And so this picture, in their stock images, there's the Chakra there's the Naga Bandhamu, Chakra Bandhamu, that is the shape of a kind of wheel. Um, there's the Naga Bandhamu, the shape of a snake, um, Churika bandamu, the shape of a sort of dagger. There's many, many. Um, And the 17th century grammarian Appa actually has a whole laundry list of of various kinds of chitras. Um, But there can also be, in addition to these kind of figural poems, there can also be things in which there's playing on meter. So there can be meter embedded within meter. So like it can be um, two different kinds of meter that then are kind of mishmashed together within a chitra. There can also be um, chitras in which there are just um, a single syllable, like an entire set, entire verse that is just na. Um, and I think that the, the example that we have in dimana uh, is there's one with uh, na and ma. Um, so it's just two syllables and, and variations of that syllables um, and those sounds. So there's a lot of uh, possibility of Chitra, um, but again, because it's not considered to be the most aesthetically complicated and um, highbrow, if you will, poetry, it's not often for Prabandha period poets to use it. But, you know, one of the arguments that we make um, within the text um, is that it comes at a particular moment, it's only about 10 poems right at the end, and that Narada is really speaking to Krishna, um, as God, at this very kind of moment in which the human level of the drama has has very much reconciled, um, so Satyabama has finished this vrata, and she is really sort of uh, re, you know. She has been proclaimed as being the most important queen, really, within uh, the, the domestic sphere. And it's at this moment Danada, that Narada comes in and he speaks these words that are all praise for Krishna. And each one is oftentimes they're just some as or their epithets or you are one who does X or you are one who does Y. And so I think that Chitra and that, that element allows us to really see what the poet's voice is, sort of how he wants us to take, what are we going to take away from the text at this moment? But of course, it has a much broader history within, um, within Sanskrit tradition. Um, many people have written about this. There's a wonderful essay um, by Daniel Ingalls about Anandavardhana's Devi Shataka, uh, which is a Chitra, uh, Anandavardhana, that is the very famous Sanskrit aesthetician himself, although he did not like Chitra in his writings, actually wrote a Chitra about the goddess. Um, and so there's a wonderful essay in the Journal of the American Oriental Society. And um, also, I think David Chulman, Gary Tubb, um, Steve Vose have all written about the genre of Chitra. So I would recommend for those inter- readers who are interested to take a look at some of those works.
0: Okay, so um, one sort of... Um... So sort of this is going back, but one thing I wanted to ask when we we're discussing that human element was the um, uh, the, the or the chapter on the Adiputa where sort of Krishna journeys to Indra's place. And he sees these marvelous things and and that sort of a very different uh, aesthetics um than something you would sort of see. Um and I remember you saying in the introduction, that it's almost like a travelogue, and it's like sometimes we always have this tunnel vision. We think that travel writing is something that came sort of much later with modernity, but um, yeah, so could you just elaborate a bit on that?
1: Yeah, so this comes in the moment of the narrative when, so after, um, after Krishna agrees to or promises to Satyabhama that he'll take the Padijata tree, uh. They spend the night, they kind of wake up the next morning and they set off to, to Indra's heavenly abode. And they're there actually in a kind of, they pretend like it's a kind of friendly travel to to Indra's heavenly abode. They're in Vataka, so they're literally traveling from earth to the heavens is, is how it's imagined. And as they're going, they're sort of, as they're going along the way, they actually see all of these different Classes of people below them, so they're watching the kind of landscape change below them and um, narrating you know what's going on as they're they're doing this travel. And so I think that's where you know sort of we read the um, the their flight um, as being a kind of travel log, right So we see. Meru mountain below them and then we see all these different classes of of people so we see right Chenchu women we see um Siddhas and Sadhyas and Gandharvas and Kinnaras um and so let's say for example um this is in chapter 2 verse 90 this is I I enjoyed this verse because um it, or this is krishna uh sort from of speaking to satibama. he says quote look at those siddha travelers they eat their packed meals with curds from the god's cow on leaves from the birch tree rest a while in the cool shade of the kalpa tree playing and joking and move on to mount kailasa and so i think about this idea of just like as they're flying above, they're like watching these people below them. And they are all these, you know, semi-divine figures, right, you know, um, that is these various classes of semi-divine beings. And you're just thinking about them having like a, a packed lunch, right? Like in their tiffins or like whatever it was. Um, and they're watching and narrating as they're going below. So it's a travelogue in the sense of a kind of mythic travelogue, right? They're not necessarily, you know, watching uh, a natural landscape per se, although landscapes are very, very important here, <coughs> excuse me. But um, I think that that's what's happening. As they're narrating below, they're seeing as they're flying in the sky
0: on Garuda what's happening below them. Yeah. And uh, so another question is um, about sort of the end part of the introduction where you <coughs> discuss a bit on the difference that um, this Telugu Rittling has from its Sanskrit counterpart, which essentially appears in the Harivamsa for the first time. Um, so, so how would you say that it's different from the Sanskrit canon?
1: I mean, I think that one difference, and maybe I can speak a little bit about how um, it's different uh, from, you know, even later Telugu works, is that in the case um, of this particular narrative um, within the text, there is a reconciliation with the Punyaka Vrata. That is this Vrata in which Satyabhama must sort of give away her husband to Narada, who is the the kind of person who's doing the Vrata itself, the um, Brahman who is being honored within the Vrata. And then she sort of buys him back essentially. And the way that later literary works even within film, really depicts the reconciliation that happens in the end of the text is that Satyabhama learned her lesson. So it's about kind of disciplining Satyabhama as a character, right? So she's very much filled with anger and jealousy and pride. Um, And she's a very strong willed character within the text, both, you know, within Sanskrit and Telugu literary sources. But Later tradition says that there's a, and this is again drawing on earlier Sanskrit tradition, but we find it within the Telugu plays that are the first written in the 1920s, and then gets continue to get staged for many years and dance dramas, as well as film. That there is a bottom at the end, and the bottom um, that is that Krish, that Satyabama gets all this kind of, she has all this wealth, um, again by virtue of the tree and et cetera. And that uh, Rukmani, by contrast, her co-wife, has just devotion. And so it, there, there's an actual physical weighing that happens in the end of Krishna being weighed against the um, all of these mounds of gold from Satyabhama. And she can never sort of match Krishna's weight on the scale. Um, by contrast, uh, Rukmani comes and she places one sort of tulsi leaf with devotion. and And she is, you know... She is able to kind of match his weight. And so the idea that that her devotion really outwins or outshines um, Satyabhama's, you know, kind of worldly uh, absorption and worldly affairs, that reconciliation does not happen in Thumana's text. Um, For the end of Thumana's text, his Satyabhama is very much just grounded in what she gets, what she asked for, and she's happy where she's at in a very kind of human way. Um, and so she wanted the Padijata tree and the Padijata Krishna plants the Padijata tree in her garden. And then she does this Punyaka vrata, and she basically, um, you know, solidifies her sort of power among her co-wives. And she invites all of her co-wives and all the different relatives of Krishna's family to come to this Punyaka vrata. And there's this wonderful verse in which Rukmini shows up sort of like putting on a fake smile, like, oh, man, I have to come to this thing. And, you know, and that's it. That's the only mention we have of Rukmini. So I think Dimana's text in that way is really interesting because he allows for, on the one hand, for Krishna to be totally divine, certainly. And we see that in the Chitra Kavya verses that come right after this uh, Punyakavrata in the fifth uh, chapter. But he also allows for Satya Obama to be fully human, and a fully human wife who's very just interested in her place um, within her broader fi- family dynamics.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I, um, this 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 uh, contrast with the tulabharam is really interesting because the tulabharam sort of, it seems to me, is a sort of a more popular motive in terms of uh, the way I have uh, seen it. It's like, it, it sort of keeps rec- recurring a lot. Um, one thing about the one other thing I had sort of a question about was about the alankars that are generally used in um, the text. Um, so if you could just like speak a bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, this is where I feel like, you know, Timana is, um, you know, we want to be careful about sort of mapping on, you know, Sanskrit um, notions of Alankara Shastra directly onto a prabandha, But certainly some of the kind of modalities of if we can call something like rasa, if we want to say, is being generated within this work, um, we have um, certainly a notion of the kind of element of the erotic that is at play, particularly in the early chapters. Um, there are these Uh, very intense verses of Sunset and Sunrise that happen in the second chapter Um, and you know I think that's the kind of over the dominating kind of motif that's at play but then there's also as you had mentioned the kind of travel piece this idea of wonder and what is the wondrous and what that might look like that whether we want to call it adbuta or not um But sort of that also being um, in play in kind of middle sections of the text, even I would say in the the, towards the end, there are many verses of battle. I mean, I think that's one thing that gets lost. Like this seems just like a narrative about marital strife. I mean, they're just verses and verses that go on from chapter four until chapter five that are about the battle between Indra and um, Krishna. And they're quite wondrous and sort of in, in a sort of terrifying um, gruesome sort of way. And that is something that, you know, there's this one point when we were translating that, you know, that the battlefield looks kind of strangely marvelous and a little bit kind of eerie to behold that, um, that is also generated. And certainly there are conventions in terms. Um, so we have many kind of within versus stock conventions and conventional forms that are, you know, drawing on the broader Sanskrit conventions, so, you know, lotuses, fries, you know, hair, black as bees, all sorts of other things. Um, but I think the mana takes some interesting liberties um, with them and really makes those, some of those conventions.
0: Right. And um, one question I was like, as I was going through this and, you know, speaking of the battle scene, um, so this is, we you know, it's a court poetry and uh, Krishna Devarai sort of invoked in almost every verse in the beginning, uh, so there is sort of a temporal play. And do you think some of that like is in, so in that battle, do you think like Krishna is somehow refashioned as the earthly monarch? And if that's the case, then like who is Indra in that context?
1: Oh, that's a really good, interesting point. Absolutely within the avatarika, that is the prefatory verses, there is this kind of refashioning of of Krishna, Krishnalevaraya as Krishna. And there is even, and I'm flipping through to figure out which one, which verse it is. Um, but there is even a verse. Uh, here it is. Okay, I'll read it. Um, and if this is helpful for you. So this is chapter one, verse 17. He says, when he was Krishna, he couldn't sit on the throne because he was a cowherd. In those days, he flirted with cowherd girls. Now he wants to be a brother to other women. He had to leave Mathura to his enemy, Jarasandha. Now he wants to conquer every fort of every enemy. He stole the wish-giving tree from Indra. Now he gives instead of taking. He wants to improve the defects of his past life. Krishna came back as Krishna God Himself in human form. So there's absolutely a kind of co- uh, correlation that's happening between um, Krishna and the God Krishna Or sorry, excuse me, the King Krishna the God Krishna, happening between the King Krishna Daya. Um, but whether it's an exact mapping of Krishnadevaraya's various enemies, which are pointed to in these early Avatataka verses, and as you noted correctly, that at the end of every chapter also, there are verses that call back to Krishnadevaraya. So it, it provides a kind of frame narrative in some ways. Um, but I, I I would be a little reluctant to say, okay, Indra is this enemy. <laughs> I'm not really sure if we can make that correlation. So
0: Yeah, but yeah. So, but you, th- you would suggest that there is sort of like a re- like temporal refashioning into the religious figure, which is seems to be like his sort of um, intellectual project in some way.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I think that there is, you know, in this case, and this is perhaps a little different from Manu in which we see that Padana has a very um, close relationship with Krishnayudaya, like he is, you know, we get a sense that they they knew each other well. In this text, we don't get a sense that the one actually knew Krishnayudaya all that well. He's giving this poem in honor of Krishnayudaya, and so Krishnayudaya, in some ways, is is being positioned as this kind of um, mythic kingly slash semi divine figure. And I think that this verse that is one seventeen does a, a number uh, chapter one verse seventeen is the clearest example of that, of the kind of uh, correlation that's happening between the two figures. Um, But again, the kind of um, mobility between what it is to be a king, a sovereign, and what it is to be a god, and the kind of move across those two landscapes that are two positions that happens within Telugu Poetry, we find here, I think, still a kind of delineation between the king and the god um, in some ways that I think that, you know, uh, one of the claims that uh, we can, if we want to look as a, as a, you know, alternative example is what happens within the Naika period where yeah. the god becomes fully human and there is this kind of collapsing between the kind of divine and mundane realms. And so I think, you know, uh, uh, Belcher Niranrao, David Schulman and Sanjay Supramaniam have talked about it in Symbols of Substance and also Akira manajan Rao and David Schulman have talked about it in when God is a customer. So I think that, you know, in some ways, I mean, Krishnadevaraya is such a an important and powerful monarch. So, you know, I mean, he was, you know, I'm studying now a poet who is based in Tirumala, and just thinking about how much Krishnadevaraya and the Vijayanagara Empire patronized these various religious sites all around South India and how much there's even influx of actual, like physical cash and things that they brought with them you know wealth uh, wealth uh, various wealth and riches i think really elevates themselves to a kind of divine level but then they're also patronizing gods who are uh, are much more you know uh, are building up those gods so we can see that maybe the laying of the groundwork for this
0: collapsing between mundane and divine realities yeah right um so I guess that's all I had. Um, Is there anything specific you want to uh, talk about? Otherwise, we can um, have, as you said, um, a recitation from Professor Narayana Rao, and we can listen to that.
1: Sure. I mean, the last thing I wanted to just say is that, I mean, I know I cut myself short in the beginning for the question that you asked about what was this process like of translating. And so... I just want to very much note that um, while my name is on the front cover of this book, um, this is very much uh, Belcher and Reinerau's translation, even though I think he would, you know, he would say otherwise. And that it's not also just the two of us that who worked on this. Um, the editorial board at the Morthy Classical Library of India, um, which included which includes um, Sheldon Pollock and David Schulman. Um, and Archana Venketation were all very actively involved in providing feedback for this translation. And it was a process that, um, that I learned a lot. I, You know, part of me began this process because as a student of classical Telugu, you, you know, you learn how to translate literally for yourself, like what every word means, right? But you don't know how to translate like a translator does. And I just wanted to know what that process would be like. And so that's sort of why in some ways, This thing this work had never been translated into English. And then I also thought, well, you know, I've never learned how to do this. And so I've learned, I mean, I'm so very much still a student of this process, but there I'm we are, I would say, deeply indebted to Dr. David Schulman's feedback. I mean, he provided so many rounds of feedback. I mean, I just have files and files and files beginning from, you know, 2013 or 2014 of 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 just reading the text over and over and over again, and and then towards the end, uh, I mean, Dr. Sheldon Pollock also provided feedback on on all of the verses, as well as Archana Venkateshin, Dr. Archana Venkateshin, who is just a a brilliant translator. I mean, I've learned actually, she came in towards the end of the project, so she gave us feedback starting sort of around 2019 2020. And I mean, she just has such an amazing sensibility of how to put together a very concise verse. Um, even in the Chitra verses, there are some interesting, she gave a suggestion of creating enchantment in the English where the lines are following visually what a Chitra might look like, uh, which I thought was such a brilliant, again, it's coming really like, so if if the, the front of the book should really have many, many people on it. And then the last person I'll also say is Heather Hughes who is the kind of series editor for this uh, publication. And she's also a poet herself. And, you know, she really pointed out things to me that I think as a South Asian, you know, scholar of South Asia, someone, you know, who is steeped in this material, she kind of would pull us back and say, hey, what is a parijata? If you don't tell us, then people are going to think it's a jasmine flower or uh, maybe padijata tree is a pine tree. Say <laughs> it's not a pine tree. <laughs> um, But there was a really like a level of stepping back and saying, so one of the things that we were able to do towards the end is um, get uh, translations of all the plants um, that are present within the text and they're found in the appendices. Um, And that's thanks to a Sanskrit scholar, Dr. Nadesh Kirti. He really went through, I gave him a whole list and he helped. Uh, sort of provide translations. But these are things that you don't really think about that all came into the like the kind of production of this work. There were so many layers of people who were involved in the translation. So it's not a singular... Um, a, this particular translation series, I will say, um, is not the work of a single person at all. It's really a team who who reads through it for years. I mean, years. I mean, it took me... It took 10 years for this thing to come out, so... Um, so I think that that's, I, I did want to make sure to add that because again, I don't want to take credit because I think in some ways it's so much of a team effort.
0: Right. I'm very interested to know if you can just like add two or three sentences to what you said is that it's very, it's one thing to just translate literally, which is, I mean, most students of South Asia do, or, or you know, uh, where we translate for, let's say writing a dissertation or, you know, to know what words mean, but it's completely different to translate sort of for a you know, like a project like MCLI or a book. Um, so if you could just say like, a, like how does that process differ?
1: Well, so I will say that it, I think it might even differ between something like MCLI and other kinds of translations where you don't have the... So MCLI is a dual language translation. So it has the Telugu text on the left hand or or any, you know, uh, the original language of the text on the left hand side and the the verse on the right hand side. And so um, I don't, there were, so that is a challenge as a translator. And I think that you can take a lot more liberties when you don't have the the facing text on the left-hand side, right? You can do all sorts of things, but suddenly when you're bound by the, the original text, then what do you do in terms of how do you translate and what are some choices you make? So on the one hand, you know, do you translate every single epithet, for example, um, very often, Narayan Rao and David, when they work together, I mean, this is one of the few projects that this was not Narayan um, Rao and David Schulman translating together. I mean, they are an amazing team. And in some ways, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've learned so much from being part of the process. But I think one of the things that they do is that, you know, they can they can ha- take some liberties in a verse. Um, in a way that you can do when there's not the, the original language. So they might not necessarily translate every single epithet, or they might not translate um, you know, something in which you have um, all of the, the kind of pieces that are um, there within the text. So you might choose to say, okay, am I, you know, this moon-faced woman, right? Am this lotus-eyed woman, right? Am I going to translate that as lotus-eyed woman or am I just going to say Bahama for the reader who, again, this is really intended not just for a readership in India, but a kind of international readership. So we want to have some level of readability across. And so again, so we, you know, targeted in that sense of thinking about what are the possibilities? What does, What do you need to have? That a text, that a poet might already have it put in the the text that we might not need in the English, um, and and so I'm sure that you know a reader who knows Telugu well is going to say it's missing this word or it's missing this epithet or it's missing this piece. But then how do we convey the kind of um, aesthetic impulse of a particular text, um, and how do we tell it as simply as possible? And so that is one of the things that I. Um, learned from, particularly, I think, working with uh, David and Archana, um, they have an an amazing, I mean, it's just an incredible ability to take uh, words that are rough in translation and to compress it. So to do what it is that the Dalgu poet is doing, right, where you have a long compound, and it takes you know, uh, uh, something that appears as almost one word, right? Because there's no line, there's no word breaks in the Telugu will show up as 10 different words in English. And they could just take that and just put it and condense it in this kind of incredible way. Um, And so one of the other, and I'll just end here saying, you know, one of the other challenges too is what to do with slasha, which is uh, a poetry or pun. So in chapter two, for example, um, We had, uh, this is uh, verse uh, 88, it ends with a slasha. And so we decided to do an M dash. And so it says, it was describing Mount Meru. So it says, Meru mountain is thick with a scented breeze from trees such as shakra, pura, mahila, lime and sandalwood. Listen well, my words could also mean, right? So here again, we're signaling to the reader, my words could also mean, and we're telling them, This is a pun, so our bitextual poetry, if we want to refer to the work of Yigal Bronner, it's not, it has two meanings. And so we tell the reader, listen, well, my words could also mean that it is like, not just shakra, pura, mahila, lime, and sandalwood, but it could also mean, is like Indra's court, filled with the fragrance from the perfume on the breasts of a Maravati's women. So something like that, right? These are choices that we made. And, you know, and and one of the challenges, again, with a, a dual language translation is you'll see that the text ends and there's a big, long gap on the page on the left-hand side. And then there's all these English words on the right-hand side. <coughs> so when we're typesetting the text, I had to really run through and make sure that everything was corresponding, right? What's happening on the left-hand side matches the right-hand side. In some cases like this, where you have a slatia and we decide to translate both you know, possibilities of the ways in which that... that it will have many, many more words on the English side of the page than it will be on the, the Telugu side.
0: Yeah, yeah. And broner talks about the fact that how Telugu is one of the few languages that takes up on the Slesha from Sanskrit. Um, and yeah, that's... I mean, in I don't know. Uh, we do not have a lot of uh, Slesha in Middle Bengali poetry. We do have, but it's not... Uh, Oh, sort of a lot used. but in Uriya, we have a lot of Silesia. Uh, it's sort of like the primary textual device that um, sort of go-to for authors and uh, especially copy authors, as you know you'd imagine.
1: yeah um, and it's it's not used. I mean then doesn't overuse it, right? like he kind of yeah. uses it in select moments, particularly in in certain places within the text. You'll find it in these kind of longer prose passages occasionally. Um so again he's I think he really you know, when you were asking about sort of what are his various ornamentations or alangadas that he uses, and he uses quite a range, I would say, and slisha being one. But um, but translating slisha is very tricky, for sure. Um, and how do you do it without making it sound kind of hokey or contrite or you know? I mean, because it's such a beautiful the way it works in the in the text is so compact in language, and that is one of our challenges as translators of Indian languages in particular, that you know, it's very compact in language um, within whatever trans- language you're translating from. And what do you do then when it comes into the English? And English is just, you know, in some ways we have, we don't have, you know, 10 different words for lotus. <laughs> what, do we, what do we do with that? You know, so then do we keep saying lotus in every occurrence or how do we, you know, so those are all kind of questions that that we um, thought through when we were working yeah.
0: on this. But I really like that, uh, that you that is that, you know, all listeners, my words could also mean. That's a very, very um, intelligent way to translate Slashya. Um, re- that's really good. I mean, I always thought that when, I mean, the, the, the way I always try to translate Slatia is just anyway, write it with a comma to sort of um, give a literal sense. But I think this is much more readable and gives uh, so much um you know, it's 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 more readable to understand two different meanings. So, yeah, that, that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And actually, in this one, I remember we did an m-dash to separate. We we actually tried variations of it. I remember when it was typeset, I had to go back through and try to figure out which one was the best version. And the m-dash, actually, so the first occurrence, we say, oh, listeners, right, you know, that my words could also mean. And then after that, then we go back through and we use an m-dash to separate the two different versions. So, we have Meru is and then we have a, a note for the person who wants to spend time flipping to the end of the text um, to say, hey, by the way, this is this whole passage is going to have two meanings. Um, and then, you know, uh, the first the first occurrence has this listen. Well, my words, this is, that that was from very long. That was certainly in Reiner I mean, it's funny because you, you see these translations and I can, I can tell you like, Oh, that was a very old inclusion. And then maybe the M dash came up later or however, these kind of various devices that we did, we also tried to play with things like um, uh, spacing. So for example, to me, the crown jewel, i this is, this is my, my particular uh, interest. The crown jewel of Telugu Prabandha and classical Telugu works is the sisa, which is a vernacular uh, a meter that is used by Telugu poets to really spend some time on a particular moment um, and to really kind of unpack uh, a description. And I think that the minna sisas, um, so there are four couplets followed by um, the written, that are written in the Sisa meter, followed by another vernacular meter, either Ataveladi or Teatagiti. And so to kind of distinguish the couplets, I started every time we, originally there were, everything was flush left. And then what I started to do to distinguish that this was Sisa, because when you see it on the page in the Telugu text um, typeset, you actually see an indent for each of the couplets. And so I started to play with that same structure when we were, uh, translating the sisa as well. So there are many, many sisas. You'll see them. They're quite long. Um, and, and you know, you can see that the indentation is quite purposeful in those cases. Um, so, you know, even something like uh, chapter 2, verse 86, or there's many, there's many sisas. So they're my favorite, <laughs> for sure. So I just wanted to, just to end, I wanted to, of course, because Noreen Rao couldn't join us as part of the this recording. And, you know, I think his words are so important because he's very much the kind of the backbone of this translation. So he, um, uh, I recorded this in a while ago and have have his permission to share it. And these are just recordings of two verses, um, from the text, just for you to get a sense of what the text sounds like. Um, so the first verse is of Satyabhama as she is waiting um, on Krishna and, um, or sort of, she's in her anger room and she's extremely, extraordinarily upset about the Parijatha gift and she's crying. And so um, first I'll play the verse and then I'll, I'll read the recitation. So this is verse chapter one, verse 133. Isura butti dendamuna hitchina shokadava lambuche
0: Gasiprana Vivati Dutan Lari Tangi Panka J Sakama in a Mupai Sela Changi Bala Pallava Drasa Kasaya Kanta Kalakanta
1: Vaduhu Kalakakali Dhanim Okay, so the verse is Um burning with jealousy and grief. She pulled her sari over her face, delicate as a lotus in bloom, and wept softly before her husband, her voice sonorous like a cuckoo's raised on young mango shoots. Um, And so we talked a little bit about this actual verse in the the introduction for the text as well. Um, So the second verse that I wanted to play is chapter 2, verse 19. And this uh, verse, and this will be the last one, is um, Esisa. So we talked a little bit about how Sisa is a vernacular meter. Um, and it's one of the ways in which I think Prabanda poets really um, crystallize what it means to write a Telugu. That is beyond the scope of Sanskrit. Um, there are many Sanskrit meters that are used also in Telugu texts. Um, but Sisa is, I would say, the crown jewel of the Telugu Prabanda. So this is a verse in which um, women are, the context of the verse is that Krishna and Narada are, eating right can you imagine like those long rows the way in which people eat at weddings or something right on the floor and they're eating and these women are serving them that's the verse like it has nothing you don't even need to know the context so let me play it first and then you can do the translation oh of course the dinging of the (laughs) <laughs> so sorry I will return t- that first of all I quit the email okay so just to repeat that this verse is of um, uh, women serving Krishna and Narada and we can imagine uh, if we were in India uh, sitting you know at a wedding you know sitting on the floor and, and, and being served one of these meals okay so this is Narayanara first uh, reciting it and then I'll uh, read the translation I will read the translation at the Hague, middle to Matki, make a lak, he litter a me, Okay so I love the the, the at the end um, in which we actually when we translated we put it right at the end. So um, the translation is young women tender as spring flowers served the meal. their braces bracelets clinked praising the delicious food. Their girdles, studded with gems, tinkled, as of saying, hurry up, serve them now. The folds of their white saris wrestled, whiter than the white rice. Their toe rings tapped on the floor, calling the guests to eat more and more. Nada then Krishna ate with joy, praising the tastes of all five kinds of food, eaten, chewed, relished, sucked, and drunk. drunk. So again this um this this kind of image of like these women who are serving and all parts of them are calling you to eat right like their their toe rings are tapping on the floor and their their girdles are tinkling and their bracelets are clinking and their saris are rustling um, These kind of son- this sonoric sounds of what's happening when this meal that is being served and then again ending with this kind of long set of sanskrit right Bahu bhojalehi choshaparima lehya, um uh which we put a tax on right at the end. So I wanted to just include those two verses. Um, so thank you for taking the time. But I think
0: yeah, yeah, yeah voice absolutely. is so important. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So I guess we'll end here. Um, so yeah. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for Professor Narayanara, too, uh, who could not be here. But you know he's always a presence. And he let us have these recordings, which are, I guess, so important. Um, yeah so yeah thank you
1: thank you for taking the time